I think many of you are aware that uh, all through my middle school years, high school years, and really all the way to last year in college for me, I was an atheist. But the church was not foreign to me. I actually grew up in the church. I grew up going to church every single Sunday. But it's not exactly accurate to say that the church wasn't foreign to me because it was. Even though I was there every Sunday, I did not understand what was going on in front of me and what I was meant to be part of. Every Sunday, I would go up and sit in the corner of the balcony and just hold my breath, waiting for the service to be done. And I would run out of the sanctuary as fast as I could so that we could get to the donuts and get home and actually have some joy in the rest of the day. I remember Sunday after Sunday, counting and recounting all of the light bulbs and all of the chandeliers in the sanctuary. I remember discovering that if I took the nickel or the dime that I brought along for the offering that was in my pocket, and if I turned it in the light a certain way, I could make Jefferson and Roosevelt grin. And I wondered if that was an ironic response on their part to this thing that I was stuck in the middle of. If you would have asked me as a kid or as a teenager why we gather together every Sunday morning, I don't think I could have given you a good answer. I didn't understand a thing of what was going on up there in front of me. It was boring, interminable music followed by a boring, incomprehensible message. So glad Parks didn't just say, Amen. (laughs) Why did we go to church? Why did we attend services? Was it because we were supposed to? Was it because somebody thought these were supposed to be good for us and we were supposed to get something out of them? Was it because God required this of us? Kind of an endurance contest? It's interesting, even thinking about the language that those ways of framing it suggest. Going to church, that's how we talk about our culture. What does it mean to go to church? Church is a people. It's not a place or an event. And attending services, that sounds like I'm going just to walk through this sequence of service elements, and that's it. Somehow when it's done, I'm done. So how would you answer that question? Why do we gather together every Sunday morning? Why are you here? What if someone said that the Part of what happens when the church gathers for worship is an encounter. An encounter between the living God and his people. Yes, God is invisible. And no, God is no more present here than he is anywhere else in all of creation. But when we come together for worship, God is present He is here. He's alive. He is near. He is available to us. He meets us. And he gives us eyes. He gives us the eyes of faith so that we might be able to see him in our midst. We come face to face with the living God every time we come together to worship. And he moves us all over again each time to give ourselves back to him in worship and in service. It's Some version of what we say at the start of every one of our services every Sunday morning. God is here. He invites us to draw near. 
And God, and our prayer is that we will, each one of us, encounter him. In the book of Exodus, there's a story that unfolds at a mountain peak that is deep in the Egyptian wilderness. And I think it is one that is meant to establish a paradigm for us, for the way we think about what it means for us to approach God in worship as his people. Not only each week when we come together as the church family, but also each day as we worship God in our homes and throughout each day, whatever it is that God may take us through or take us to. Our call as a church, as you know, is to live a life of love. And that certainly includes our loving one another and our pouring out God's love on the people, the neighbors that he places around us in this world. But that life of love begins and ends with love for God. So learning about how we approach God in worship and how we can grow in intimacy with God is central to our fulfilling the call that God has put on us as his people here at Covenant. The story that we're going to begin to explore this morning will take us through the next month and a half, unfolds over a space of about a dozen chapters starting in chapter 19 of the book of Exodus, and weaving back and forth. It's, it, we hear a little bit of the story, and then we go to a list of some of the, the commandments that God has given his people. Then we go back to the story, and then we come to more of God's instructions for his people, and, and back and forth the story unfolds. God is bringing his people out of Egypt and into the promised land. But the part of the story that we are going to be looking at together tells about the very first stop on that long and winding road across the wilderness. This is the story of God bringing his people to Mount Sinai and what happens next. Mount Sinai, it's important that we realize, is not some random stop along the way to the promised land. Mount Sinai, which is also called Mount Horeb in the Old Testament, happens to be the exact same place where we, as we read in Exodus chapter 3, Moses encounters the God in the form of, of flame. It turns out that the purple granite peak that's located deep in the midst of what's known today as the Sinai Peninsula of Egypt, and way off the main road, to get from Egypt to Canaan, Mount Sinai is God's home address. He has brought his people to his own front door. Now, obviously, if God is a maker of heaven and earth, as we are told in Psalm 146, and if heaven is God's throne and earth is his footstool, as it says in Isaiah 66, and if God is spirit and he's not confined to any one place, but is present to all places equally, as it says in John chapter 4, then we have to understand this idea of God living on Mount Sinai as a convention. This is a convention that God establishes in order not only to make himself present to his people, but to teach his people what it means to approach him and to be in relationship with him. So it's meant to be understood symbolically as a place where God lives. So this morning, what I would like to do is to have us focus in on the invitation that is at the heart of this passage. Because if Mount Sinai represents God's home, then his bringing his people there and what happens next is profoundly instructive for us as the people of God and says so much to us 
about the things that matter most to God in his dealings with us and, and what is on God's heart toward us. So let's listen in to this first part of the unfolding story. We're going to read Exodus chapter 19 and then a couple of verses in Exodus 20. I invite you to open to those passages with me. Exodus chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. On the first day of the first month after the Israelites left Egypt, so on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. And then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are saying to the descendants of, of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and how I brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all of the nations, you will be my treasured possession. And although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and he summoned the elders of the people and he set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him to speak. And the people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will put their trust in you. And Moses told the people, or told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. Because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of the people. So put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, may they then approach me on my mountain. So after Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. He said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations and on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. And everyone in the camp trembled. And then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. And the smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. And the whole mountain trembled violently. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the, Mount of Sinai, the top of Mount Sinai, and he called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up. And the Lord said to him, go down and warn the people so that they don't force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourselves have warned us, put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. And the Lord replied, go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and he told them. And when the people saw the thunder, this is picking up at chapter 20, verse 18. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and they heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear and they stayed at a distance. 
And they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we'll listen, but don't have God speak to us or we'll die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you. I think uh, one scholar has suggested, and I think this is exactly right, that a much better translation of this is God has come to let you experience this. Very different than the idea of him standing in opposition to the people and and putting a test in front of them. God has come to let you experience this so that the fear of the Lord will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance when Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. There is so much that is revealed about God during this encounter between God and his people and between God and Moses specifically. What I'd like to focus on this morning is what is revealed specifically about God's heart when he brings Moses and his people to the mountain. Now, at first glance, I don't know if this is your experience as you read through this passage again or or maybe for the first time this morning. At first glance, when, when we encounter God in this passage, he seems daunting. He seems off putting and forbidding. The overwhelming physical expression of the, the transcendence of God and the holiness of God that is expressed through smoke billowing and the mountain shaking and the trumpet sounding and fire blazing, all of that can seem like God is expressing something other than a heart of welcome to his people. But those are things that we need to understand as expressions of God's nature and God's character, as we will be exploring next Sunday. They don't express his heart of welcome for his people. His heart of welcome finds expression in different ways, in other ways throughout this passage. And I think it's crucial that we take a closer look at this passage in order to see those. God has not brought his people to this mountain in order to just give them rules or to give them boundaries or to give them blueprints. God has invited them to this mountain to give them himself. And it turns out that in spite of first appearances, that this is a profoundly relational and personal, even intimate meeting of God with his people. First notice the way that God is the one who initiates this entire encounter. As he does every encounter we will ever have with him. Listen again to the language that God uses in verses 4 through 6 of chapter 19. You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and I brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all of the nations, you will be my treasured possession. And although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The people of God are at Mount Sinai at God's invitation. His fierce effort is what has brought them there. It's described as an eagle carrying them. In the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 32, this very familiar image of of the fierceness with which an eagle will spread out its wings over its chicks in order to protect them, and then how it will even pick them up and carry them off to safety That's the image that we're meant to understand of the way that God brought his people to himself. For the Lord's portion is his people. And in a desert, he found them. In a barren and howling waste. And he shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that that stirs over its nest, that hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to protect them and carries them aloft. 
We see in these words a description of God's initiative. I brought you to myself. For years I have conspired to bring you to myself and now I have done it. We see in this his heart to be in a committed relationship with them. Using this language of covenant in verse 5. A covenant, as you may know, is a relationship of mutual commitment. Is each one giving the other one their exclusive allegiance. I commit myself to be faithful to you, even as you commit yourself to be faithful to me. More on that in a few weeks. We see in these words his choice of them. You will be my treasured possession. The idea is of a choice that expresses the heart's deepest desire and longing. Out of all of these that I could have chosen, I chose you. We hear in this His desire that we would be his people, that we, of all people, would be the ones to serve him and to represent him in this world. You will be for me, my kingdom and my nation. Again and again, God expresses in these passages how he is the one who takes the initiative, how he goes before us every time we come before God. I carried you, I brought you, I initiated relationship with you, I committed my heart to you, I chose you, I wanted you for my own. And then when his people arrive at the mountain, again, he is the one who takes the first step, opening his heart to be in relationship with his people. Chapter 19, verse 20, it says, once he has brought his people to the foot of the mountain, the Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and calls Moses then to the top. The God of the universe draws near so that we can draw near to him. The Lord always steps down and steps near in order that he might step near to us as his people. It's a pattern that we will see in just a moment finding its fullest expression when he empties himself and takes on human form in the person of Jesus, coming to us as one of us. There is never a time when we step toward God when he hasn't already stepped toward us first. And he has made all of the provision for that encounter. I was thinking about uh, an opportunity that I had to be together with my best friend, Danny Sharp, a couple of years ago. Danny has been my closest friend for 40 years, and he's one of the guys in my pastor's covenant group. And he lives nine hours away in North Carolina, so we uh, connect on a fairly regular basis via Zoom or, or FaceTime, but it's just not the same. So a couple of years ago, I said, Danny, I wonder if you could just set aside a day for me. And I'll tell you um, what I want you to do a little bit later. And then I found a place in the uh, Red River Gorge area near Lexington. I found a treehouse cabin for us to meet in. And, and I rented that. And then I filled up a cooler with food. And then I hopped in my car and I drove there. And I said, Danny, would you just meet me halfway? And I'll take care of all of the rest. It's exactly how God means for us to understand the nature of our interactions with him. Every encounter we have with God is one where he has gone before us into the moment and he has made all of the provision for it. There is never a time when we will step toward God when he has not stepped toward us first. What would it mean for us if we were to carry that perspective into our Sunday morning worship and into our daily devotional time and into the times when we approach God all throughout the day? God takes the initiative. He moves toward us. He makes all the arrangements to bring us to himself. He draws us, he draws near to us. And each time we approach God, we approach God in response to his initiative. 
We love because he first loved us. But then notice this next part of this passage. Then, having taken the initiative in his relationship with us, he invites us. He extends the invitation to us. I have drawn near to you. Now, draw near to me. Come. Exodus chapter 19, verse 20, the Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai, and then he called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Every time we gather together for worship, we come at God's invitation. The king of the universe, the Lord of heaven and earth, requests the honor of your presence. Throughout the corridors of the ages, and to every corner of this world, the invitation sounds again and again as God says to his people, come, come, come. Then the Lord instructed Moses, come up here to me. Then the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain. Again and again through this encounter and again and again throughout the scriptures, God puts before us the invitation, come. God desires to be in an ever-deepening relationship with us. So wherever we are, he desires to draw us from that point to a point that is even nearer to him. Have you ever wondered why in the middle of this wonderful unfolding story that's happening in the book of Exodus, why in the middle of that that amazing encounter of Moses' encounter with God at Mount Sinai, why all of a sudden smack dab in the middle of that, he he is dropping blueprints into the middle of the story to explain how to build this structure and he's handing on an org chart for how the priesthood is supposed to be established? Have you ever thought about how those things fit together? The whole point of the tabernacle is to have a regular place to gain access to God. To have a place where we can again and again say yes to his invitation. To respond to his invitation to come near to him. The tabernacle is like a portable Mount Sinai. It's a way that God can be present to us always and everywhere. Now notice this. When you combine together the affectionate language with which God describes the lengths to which he brought to draw the people to himself. I carried you. I thought of you. I initiated a relationship with you. I committed to you. I brought you. I chose you. I wanted you to be my own. When you combine that together with his repeated words of invitation, come, draw near to me. Come, be near to me. What becomes clear is God's desire for an intimate relationship with his people. Intimacy is a depth of relationship. It's a closeness of a connection. It's a a bringing together of two hearts. God doesn't call us to come to him because of what, what he wants us to give him or do for him. Come, make your deposit. Come, pay your dues. He wants our hearts. And he wants to give us his heart. The mystical description in Ephesians chapter 5 of the relationship of God and the church being like the relationship between a husband and a wife reinforces our understanding that God desires a relationship of intimate connection between us. So much so that from very early on in the life of the church, going all the way back to church fathers like like Jerome and Origen and Gregory of Nyssa and Bernard of Clairvaux and and Augustine. 
going all the way back to the earliest days of the church, as people came to the book in the Bible that's called the Song of Solomon, which is clearly a description, a celebration of the delight and affection, the intimate affection that a husband and a wife find in one another, they felt justified in using that book of scripture also to describe the intimate affection that God has for us as his people and the sort of affection that he means for us to have with him. So one of the favorite passages from the Song of Solomon to, de- to describe the, God's heart for us as his people was the one we find in Song of Songs chapter 2, verse 10. My beloved spoke to me and he said, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come away with me. So every time we hear God saying to his people, come, this intimate invitation is what God means us to hear. How would it change your experience of of corporate worship if that was the way that you heard God's invitation to come into his presence? If that was the invitation that came to your ears at the start of each day and throughout each day, arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come away with me. So God takes the initiative to bring us near. God extends the invitation for us to draw near. And then in love, God introduces us into the fullness of his blessing for us as his people. God is not a skimpy, stingy God. The life that he has for us is a life of fullness and and richness and abundance. As he says at the end of the portion of the story we've been looking at today, Exodus chapter 20, verse 24, wherever I cause my name to be honored, I will come to you and I will bless you. It is the heart of God to bless those that he chooses and draws to himself, to pour out on them every spiritual blessing. That dimension of God's invitation and heart is captured in the words of invitation in Isaiah 55, when God, through the prophet, reiterates his invitation for the people to come five different times. But it doesn't just come as a stark command, but as a sweet invitation to draw near and experience all that God has for us. Listen to the lavish language, the the language of exuberance and abundance that's connected with God's invitation to come to him. Isaiah 55, 1 through 3, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money on what is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. And delight yourselves in, in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, that I may make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for you. God throws wide open the doors to the banquet, making available to us every blessing. Not only the blessings that we receive in what God does for us and what God has for us, but the blessing that we receive in who God is for us. He himself is the greatest blessing that he gives us. And so it makes sense then as an echoing response to that sort of amazing, lavish uh, invitation and introduction to all that God has for us, it's so appropriate that our sort of response would be the kind that we find in Psalm 
63, the opening verses. You, God, are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole body longs for you in a dry and parched land where there's no water. I've seen you in the sanctuary. I've beheld your power and your glory. Your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied in you as with the richest of fare. So God initiates the relationship. God invites us to draw near. And then God introduces us into the fullness of his blessing. How would it change your view of worship if you heard God inviting us to come to him in order that he might bring us into the fullness of his blessing. And if we saw our right response to God as our saying to him, oh God, my whole being seeks for you, longs for you, and finds its satisfaction only in you. But there's one more part of the story of God's invitation into intimacy with him that is crucial that we not miss. It's one that plays out not at Mount Sinai in the wilderness of sin, but on a hill called Golgotha outside of the city walls of Jerusalem 1,500 years later. When God brought the Israelites to Mount Sinai, God revealed his heart for them, and he laid a crucial foundation for his relationship with his people. But the story doesn't end there. Mount Sinai was a starting, but not a completing. It was an anticipating, but not a fulfilling There is a crucial second and final chapter to the relationship that God means to have with his people. In the Jewish era, when God began to make himself known and began to draw his people near, the nearest that God came to them was the top of a mountain in the form of a pillar of cloud and fire. But then comes the Christian era in which God takes the initiative to draw near in a whole new way by coming to us himself in human form. John chapter 1, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. God in human form, having taken the initiative to draw near to us, invites us to draw near to him. Listen to these words of invitation to us today. The fullness of God, the Trinitarian God, giving expression to his invitation in the person of Jesus. Come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. A similar invitation in Mark chapter 6, verse 31 that I love. Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place, and I will give you rest. It's an invitation not just for adults, not just to those who are in places, occupied places of importance in our culture, but for all people of all ages. As Jesus says, let the little children come to me. Don't prevent them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. It turns out 
that when we get to the top of the mountain of redemptive history, this is who we see waiting for us there. And this is how he waits for us. In the incarnation, God stretches out his arms in wide welcome to this world. Through Jesus, God takes the initiative and he draws near to us. Through Jesus, he extends that invitation in order that we might draw near to him. And he, through Jesus, he opens wide his arms in order to bring us into the fullness of his blessing. As Jesus himself says in John chapter 10, verse 10, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly, have it to the full. And as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Jesus opens his arms to receive us. He extends his arms wide and he says, come. Have you responded to that invitation? Have you run into his arms? With each new Sunday morning, every time we gather as God's people, with each new day, each time we come before God alone, and with each new moment, as God walks with us throughout the day, God stands before us in the person of Jesus, his arms wide, and he says, come to me. Come away with me. Wherever you find yourself. In the midst of whatever it is that you are facing. Regardless of how you may be feeling. No matter how you got where you are. No matter how weary you are, no matter how overwhelming your circumstances are, Jesus, who puts flesh on the initiative of God, Jesus, who gives hands and feet to the invitation of God, Jesus, who embodies God's desire to bring us into the fullness of his blessing, Jesus says, come to me. How would he have you respond this morning? I really wish that we could go back and start over in our worship service now and, and hearing this intimate invitation from God, we could sing back through those songs, but carry that posture of worship with you out into the remainder of the day. Our worship team is going to come and lead us in our closing song. And as they do, I just want to encourage you. We've been listening all morning to God's invitation to us. What is your response to him? You take just a moment of quiet as they come and respond to God's invitation to you this morning.